not another passage about judgment. We've seen a few so far, haven't we, through this book and there'll be plenty more to come. And it can feel a little bit maybe tedious hearing judgment again and again. But I guess if we think of it this way, what what would you say to someone who was in a prison and they woke up each morning and said, oh, not another prison guard. I saw a prison guard when I first came in. Why do I need to see the prison guards day after day after day? Well, we'd say to that person, well, that's part and parcel of you being in prison, isn't it? You're reminded every day by the prison guard that you're in here for a reason. Well, the reason we keep hearing about judgment is because that's part and parcel of living in a world that's under the curse of sin, under God's judgment. So we'll keep hearing that, we'll keep being reminded and we need to keep being reminded that this world is under judgment and is destined for judgment before we see the new heavens and the new earth. The key difference between today's passage and last week's passage, which spoke of judgment, is that last week it was the warning of judgment that must be given in the proclamation of the gospel that we in the church, as the church, are engaged in today. We, we heard that we need to remind people that your response to the gospel will have consequences and if you reject the gospel, it will mean judgment. Today's passage is the judgment that will actually happen and it brings a conclusion then to this fourth vision of seven symbolic figures in this battle with evil. Like the two visions that came before it, this ties together the other six parts of the vision and it brings about a resolution to the whole picture. So just a quick recap of what we've seen so far. The first four figures of the woman, the dragon and the two beasts represent how history is played out under the sovereign hand of the father as the devil has fought to oppose and will continue to fight to oppose his plan to save the world through the sending of his son. It's a fight the devil knows he can't win, so he's trying to cause as much collateral damage as he can before he's finally destroyed. The next two figures then answered for us the question that we've asked a few times, where are we, the people of God, in the midst of this battle And we saw two answers. First, that we are the redeemed there on Mount Zion with the Lamb, secure, protected, because we share in his victory over sin and death and the devil by being united with him in his death and resurrection. And then secondly, we saw that we're called to engage in spiritual warfare, undermining the schemes of the devil with the sword of the word of God, calling people through the gospel to turn from idols, turn from worshipping 
the image of the beast to worship the true and living God, to fear him, to glorify him, to worship him, so that when Babylon falls, they will be saved rather than being destroyed with it. This final figure brings the actual judgment that we warn people of as we proclaim the gospel. Now there's no doubt that this figure represents Jesus, the Son of Man, as prophesied by Daniel. Daniel says in Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. If you're in doubt about that, Jesus identified himself as the Son of Man. I am, answering to uh, the Pharisees when they said, are you the Son of the Most High? I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus is there, the Son of Man, seated on a white cloud, but don't picture it as a fluffy cloud in a blue sky. This cloud is the cloud of God's glory. In some ways, like the thick cloud that enveloped Mount Sinai and was pierced with lightning and thunder. Although it's different to that cloud. The cloud at Sinai was dark because it hid the Lord so that the people could not look upon his glory and die as a result. This cloud is white. This is the outshining. It's not hiding the glory, it's outshining his glory. Now we normally speak about the uh, return or the second coming of Jesus. The New Testament also uses the language of appearing or revealing. Titus, uh, Paul says to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So God's grace has appeared, verse 11, in Jesus' first coming, through whom salvation came to all people. But we still look forward to that future day when Jesus will appear again, this time without his glory being veiled, only visible to those with the eyes of faith. In this age, when he appears again, all will see him. All will see his glory. And depending on where we stand in relation to God, that glory will either mean judgment or final salvation. It's God's mercy that he keeps his glory hidden from us, only giving us glimpses and snippets. You may have heard the uh, common atheist challenge. I'll only believe God, believe in God, if he shows himself to me. 
in a spectacular way, beyond a shadow of doubt, and says to me, I am real. The problem with that challenge is that it's made to a God who's not the God of the Bible. Because God says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So any atheist who got what they demand from God would be consumed by the fire of his holiness if they actually saw him. So be careful what you ask for. In his mercy, what theologians have called common grace, God has given us glimpses of his glory that while they're small, are sufficient for every person to acknowledge his existence and to know that he is worthy of worship as their creator. He's done this from the very beginning by making himself known in creation for what can be known about God is plain to them, speaking of all humanity, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So we look around us, we see the the majesty of creation and it's a glimpse of the glory of God. And then he's done it in a supreme and unmistakable way in Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So they are the two things, the two answers that we can give to anyone who says to us, I can't believe in God because he hasn't made himself known to me. Firstly, look at the world which bears the marks of the Creator's handiwork and is more than enough for you to fall down and worship him as your Creator and King. And secondly, look to Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God and is more than enough for him, for you to fall down before him and call him Saviour and Lord. If now we have looked at those glimpses of glory by faith and seen them and recognised them for what they are, then we'll be prepared for when Jesus appears displaying the full, uncensored, unveiled glory of who he is as the Son of God and the Son of Man. So Jesus is here, the reigning Son of Man, and he holds a sickle in his hand. Just in case you don't know what a sickle is, It's a long knife with a curved blade. Someone's on a a long handle and it was used to reap the harvest. Occasionally also used as a weapon just as the sickle would lop off the heads of grain in battle it would lop off the heads of your enemies. So Jesus is coming on the clouds to reap the harvest 
And in fact, he reaps not one but two harvests. Grain in verse 16 and grapes in verse 19. Now we know that the first, first harvest is grain because the word that's translated there as ripe at the end of verse 15 it's different to the word that's translated ripe in verse 19. Here, the word literally means dry, referring to the heads of grain that have turned yellow or white and are now ready to be picked. You're probably familiar with how Jesus often used agricultural images in his parables and on a number of occasions he uses the harvest as an image to describe what will happen at the end of the age. Here's one in Mark 4. He said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Then he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. In John 4, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. So almost without exception, the the grain harvest is used symbolically in the Bible to refer to the gathering in of God's people from the field that is the earth. The Feast of Pentecost, which we know as the day that Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit, that was the celebration of the beginning of the wheat harvest. So God deliberately timed Pentecost so that the image of the harvest would be there as he began the work through the preaching of the Gospel to gather in his people from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth. Now in the context of this vision where we've been looking at the schemes of the devil is one of Jesus' harvest parables which is particularly relevant. From Matthew 13, he put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let's let, let both grow together until the harvest and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is one of the few parables that Jesus then went on to explain. 
So he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age and the reapers are angels. So that's a parable about what we read in this vision. The devil seeks to destroy the good harvest of God's people by sowing weeds. Now, these weeds most likely were tares. They were grasses that looked like the wheat as they were growing, but they produced a different head. And the seeds of the tear plant are black and they're poisonous. Too much of that in your bread and you'll die. So it's only as the plant matures that the difference can really be spotted and then the weeds can be removed so that the harvest can be saved. So see how this fits our context. The devil's strategy is not only to lead people astray into idolatrous worship of the beast, but it's to undermine the witness of the church by infiltrating it and leading the church astray through false teaching and false prophets. But who's the Lord of the harvest? Jesus. He is the man in the parable who owns the field and who sows the seed. He knows the strategy of the enemy. He already has a plan in place to make sure that the work of the devil comes to nothing. So within Jesus' church, the visible church, made up of all who are involved in some way in the activities and the gatherings of the church, there are both wheat and weeds, those who are genuine believers and those who are not. Some of those weeds may be people who are among us because the Holy Spirit's actually doing a work in their hearts to draw them to Jesus and in time they will come to true faith. That's why Jesus is happy for the wheat and the weeds to grow alongside one another. Though most people who come to saving faith in Jesus have done so after some time of involvement with the life of the church, hearing the gospel, witnessing the lives of those who have been transformed by Jesus. That's why we should be glad if we have coming regularly or semi-regularly those who have not yet confessed Jesus as their Lord. Why we should be continually striving in prayer for them. If you happen to be one of those people here this morning, you need to know the reason you're among us is because Jesus is drawing you to himself. So it's possible by the power of God for a weed to be transformed into wheat. There are other weeds, maybe those who even think they are genuine Christians but have believed a false gospel or they're relying on their works instead of the grace of God through faith in Jesus. 
Sometimes we might spot those people easily. They might openly undermine the gospel through false teaching or through divisive behaviour. But these weeds may be harder to identify if they know how to walk the walk and talk the talk. But when Jesus appears, it will be clear who belongs to him and who doesn't. So we need to entrust ourselves to the Lord of the harvest and not try to make that division before the appropriate time because that's his job, not ours. We also need to know that it's Jesus, not the devil, who determines our destiny. There's something to be said for the fact that while the context of this vision is the devil's schemes, here the devil doesn't even get a mention. When Jesus ascends to his throne, the devil no longer figures because he's been judged, he's been cast out. The weeds that he's planted will be pulled out and thrown into the fire and the wheat will be preserved and brought into the barns. None of Jesus' people will be lost. Make sure that your assurance rests on that truth. Nothing and no one can snatch you out of his hand, not even the devil himself. The second harvest is the grape harvest, which in the calendar started normally around a month or so after the wheat harvest. Some communities of Jews in Jesus' days celebrated a festival called the New Wine Festival. After the grapes were harvested, were crushed and given time to ferment and it happened 50 days after the Feast of Pentecost. Now for the Jews, as in most cultures, the grape harvest is a joyous time. But here it's not. Well, the first harvest was the gathering in of God's people. This harvest is his judgment upon the unrepentant. The grapes here are the grapes that was used to produce the wine that was mentioned a bit earlier in verse 8. Fallen is Babylon the Great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the wrath. Remember that word passion is actually the word wrath, the wrath of her sexual immorality. Wine and alcohol is associated with joy in the Bible, but when used sinfully, just like all of God's gifts, it will produce debauchery and brawling and destruction. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. It's not a command not to consume wine, but to not allow wine to rob you of your self-control and your wisdom, the good gifts that God gives when we're filled with 
the Holy Spirit. Now we get more insight into these verses by going back to a very similar passage in the book of Joel. Joel chapter 3, let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. We need to explain a couple of words here. Jehoshaphat means literally the Lord judges. So he's actually saying, come to the valley where you will be judged by the Lord. This valley here is also called the valley of decision. And that's the word that literally refers to the cutting tools of a harvester. But it's also used to refer to the verdict of a judge whose words are like a sharp blade that cuts to the heart of the one who's been found guilty. So this is the same picture, the nations being brought to judgement, but the key thing for us to note is there in verse 13. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. So what is it that's overflowing from the vats? They're evil. This then helps us understand Revelation 14.20. The wine press is stomped, the blood flows, forms this great river as deep as the horse's bridle, so about a metre and a half, flowing for 1,600 stadia, which is about 300 kilometres. A massive volume of blood Whose blood is it? It's not the blood of the people being tortured in the winepress of God's wrath. This is the blood that those people have shed, which has stained the earth throughout history. See, God's righteous judgment exposes and uncovers all of the evil of humanity and shows it to be so great that it overflows the winepress. We need to see that the level of God's wrath is always in direct proportion to the level of human evil. His anger never exceeds what is actually deserved by human sin. And our sin, collectively, as a race, is exceedingly great. From the moment Cain killed Abel and Abel's blood cried out from the ground to the Lord, human beings have shed one another's blood in war, in murder or even as Jesus talked, in anger, insulting and hating one another. 
Both you and I, even if we've never struck or killed someone, we still have our hands stained red because of our thoughts, our words, our actions, where we have not treated our fellow human beings as image bearers of God. So the, the blood that's on our hands against our fellow human beings is also against God because when we attack our fellow human beings, we're attacking the image of God, we're attacking God himself. So while these images of judgment may feel to us to be extreme, maybe unnecessary or violent, on that day when the full violence of human beings and of the human heart is is unveiled, we'll see that the justice of God is perfect. Abel's blood cried out to God for vengeance, for justice. And so this great river of blood that has flowed down through human history cries out as a testimony against us. Seals our guilt. Gives us no excuse, no answer to the righteous wrath of God. But there is one, the one whom Abel foreshadowed, whose blood was also shed by his brothers, which stained the earth at the foot of the cross. His blood wasn't a great river. It flowed, but it wasn't a great river, but it didn't need to be because his blood was the blood of the only innocent person who's ever lived. The only one who doesn't have someone else's blood on his own hands. So because of that, the blood of Jesus is sufficient to wash away the sin of not just one, but all who come to him and trust that he died in their place. You may have heard of William Cooper, spelt Cowper but pronounced Cooper, a famous English poet. He penned the phrases, God moves in mysterious ways and variety is the spice of life. But he also became a hymn writer after his conversion at age 32. I've got a bit of a biography of him in the newsletter. After a bout of deep clinical depression and three suicide attempts, he was at the St Albans Insane Asylum, yes they called it that back then, and he picked up a Bible and his eyes fell on Romans 3, 23, 25. Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That was the point of his conversion. He later wrote in his memoir, Immediately I received the strength to believe it and the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment I believed and received the gospel. 
Unless the almighty arm had been under me, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears and my voice choked with transport or wonder. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder. Shortly after this, Cooper was discharged from the asylum. He continued to struggle with his mental health for the rest of his life, but he moved to a place called Olney, where he was taken under the wing of John Newton, an ex-slave trader who knew a lot about having other people's blood on his hands. And it's during that time that he wrote probably his most famous hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, your precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream your flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When this poor lisping stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song I'll sing your power to save. We can and we should rejoice that our God is a just God. He will see to it that all evil and injustice is dealt with. But even more so, we can and should rejoice that our God is a redeeming God who in the midst of his judgments has shown this great mercy to us. 